Well, good evening again, everyone, and thank you for swimming over. It's, um, I must say, it's a wonderful summer we're having, don't you think? <laughs> Vincent emailed me the week before the retreat to say, just to let you know, you might want to bring some warmer clothes. And you, so it was very helpful, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, again, we've got some um, quite a few questions and some really, really good um grappling engaged questions so thank you for them and um, as with last night I'll kind of work my way through them and we'll stop when you know it feels like we're getting weary um, we've got another bit of time tomorrow morning so um, you know hopefully we can we can get through so uh, the first question in the box well actually this is from last night um, what spiritual practice principles should guide significant life decisions? What spiritual principles should guide significant life decisions? I guess this morning's talk on discernment was, you know, a bit about that, but um, I just thought I could um, recap perhaps briefly. And the first, the word that came to my mind when I first read this question was the word obedience. Um, which has a mixed press, obviously, <laughs> um, partly because it has been misused and abused at, at times. Um, but as I think I said this morning, I, I really like the way Lawrence um, unpacks the word obedience to say that it's not about doing what you're told as becoming the word you hear. So in that sense, it puts listening at the, the forefront, um, becoming the word you hear, listening and then the willingness to give yourself to what it is that you hear. So how do we, I think we can further unpack that in terms of how do we go about that. Um, I think the first the first piece of obedience really is is the desire to be obedient. It's it's actually, yeah. I'm going to go God's way. Might not know what that is yet, but yeah, that's what I really want. And that can actually take more to get to that point than we often recognise. I think that has layers. I think sometimes, oh yes, yes, I'm happy to do what God wants, you know, that's, yes, yes. And then we sort of start to get some little inkling about what God might want. <laughs> and then, oh, no, hang on a sec. <laughs> I didn't mean that. Um, so, so then we find we have to be willing to consent to want it, to desire it at a deeper level. It's a bit like, and Jesus tells a story of the two sons you know whose father says you know one go off into the field to do such and such and the older son said yes you know and then he doesn't go and the younger son says no no I'm not going to do it and then he does go and Jesus says well who do you think did the will of his father it's a bit like that we have to kind of get down to that deeper level and then having done that having really said yes having really got into the point where we actually want to hear what God might want then there's still the work of listening 
there's still the work of um, trying to hear it. <laughs> um, and I think that can, like, what does that mean in practice? Because um, it's not like usually the voice just kind of comes. I think in practice, part of the work of listening includes deepening our own our self-awareness, being willing to reflect on ourselves. Not because we're just fascinated by ourselves and wanting to navel-gaze, but because the more I can be aware of how I am in life, how I am with other people, how I am in my workplace or whatever, the more likely I am to be able to just hear something a little bit different. I'm a bit more open. So I think the work of listening can include a committed practice of self-reflection so that, so that we just don't keep taking for granted the way we've always seen things. And all the other things that we know about, kind of actually taking seriously what other people might say. Which doesn't necessarily mean they're always right either, um, but at least we take it seriously. We, we kind of listen. The attention to context, the, you know, all of the stuff that we kind of know about is listening. And then I think we get to the point where, okay, as best I can, as best I've heard it, as best I can discern, I think this is what I, this is the next step. This is what I need to do. Well, this at least is what. I need to explore, or this is a conversation I need to open up. But we can do that too, and I think this is important in, in a spirit of humility. We, we might not have quite heard it right, or we, we, might, we might be in the territory, but our, our perception needs to be... Sorry, are you...? No, no, no I was going to. I just thought it might uh, just add to what Yeah. You're Sure. <clears throat> Many years ago, uh, someone said to me, uh, this was when I was in the US as a young Native American man, he said that the Spirit gives you three uh, <clears throat> indications. First, you ignore. <laughs> Second, a little stronger, but you still ignore. Third, you've got to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's that sense of, and that's yeah. been brought out in uh, my experience. Yes, on, uh, yeah. On key. Yeah. Key, yeah. Key, very key. I think that's right. And that, thanks, Peter, because that's really helpful. Because I think one thing is if we're not sure, like maybe we're a bit worried. Like for me, when I first got a glimmer that maybe I was called to ordination, my first thought was, oh, no, no, very bad thought. Don't have that thought. <laughs> and, and then a bit later, it came a bit stronger. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something in this. But I was frightened that I was making it up or mm. that I was just, you know, self-aggrandizing or whatever. And I thought, well, if this is for real, it will come back. And it did. So that, that, that's, and many of you will know that experience too. But I think even then, even when it's come back and even if we're taking our steps, there's, there's also a spirit then of being willing to still be shown more or, yes, in a sense, a yes. kind of detachment, a kind of humility. You know, maybe yes. I haven't 
yeah, a willingness to keep being led as opposed to, ah, right, I'll take it from here, um, <laughs> which I'm also very good at. And then I think the final thing, so this is spiritual principles guiding significant decisions, I think in the end courage is required, you know, actually just daring, <laughs> daring to take that step or to... Um, So, thank you for that question. Um, a couple of other people have asked a little bit about pilgrimage, and this one I'd like to hear more about the relationship between the contemplative journey and the pilgrimage journey, and the, and the Camino de la Vida or the Chemin de la Vie, the way of life, the, the pilgrimage of life, as well as. Um, um, and someone else asked, they'd just like to know a little bit about the whys and wherefores of, of the pilgrimage. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about that and then, and then get to this question. Um, pilgrimage, of course, is a metaphor that John Mayne uses a lot um, to speak about meditation. It's a pilgrimage to the heart or a pilgrimage to the centre and a pilgrimage to God. The, 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 the actual physical pilgrimage that, that I did, I, I've done two now, um, in 2013, I walked the Camino Francais, which is the way which goes from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port on the French side of the Pyrenees through to Santiago de Compostela in Spain and then on to Finisterre. So it was 900 kilometres to the end of the earth. Um, and then just most recently, the Camino Portuguese, which goes from Lisbon north to Santiago in Spain and then went to France, that's six 100 kilometres, which is just not nearly long enough. And so we went to, to France and walked from Cluny, uh, where there's a famous Benedictine monastery, Cluny, to Le Puy, which is one of the, a section of the, of the French route, kind of further back in France. Um, I think in terms of the, the relationship between the contemplative journey and the pilgrimage journey, I mean... It's a kind of, it's a metaphor bonanza, so there's so much that you could, you know, say about it. Um, one is, um, but, but I, I think the heart of it is, um, and I think this is why John Mayne draws on this metaphor. When you're on pilgrimage, the whole of you is on the way. It's, it's not like there's some little piece of you that's safe back in Canberra with a hot shower and, <laughs> um, you know, not sore feet. Um, you, you can't just send a little, little bit of you on pilgrimage. The whole of you goes. It's, a, it's an embodied um, experience and it, it, it implicates the whole of you. And... Um, I think this is what John Mann is always trying to get us to see about our prayer, that it needs, it, it, it's about, it implicates the whole of us. The whole of us is in our prayer. It's not like there's me basically self-sufficient, basically self-contained saying a few prayers. You know, that's a much more risky <laughs> embodied thing when we give ourselves to the mantra without self-consciousness, without double-mindedness, you know, which is why he says um, it can take nerve to become really quiet 
because there's a point where we suddenly realise what it means. Um, I think that's the heart of the relationship. Um, and I think it is why pilgrimage is also, well, pilgrimage is a contemplative practice itself and it is a transformative practice because, the, you know, the whole of you is being on the way. And I remember the first time we went, I met a woman fairly early on and we all had really sore feet and she was feeling really disappointed and she said, oh, I thought this was going to be a more spiritual experience. <laughs> it's kind of like that is the spiritual experience. <laughs> there's nothing else. <laughs> but, you know, like we have, there's that kind of implicit dualism, you know, spirit, body, mind, body. Contemplation undoes that and so does pilgrimage, I think. Um, and we are transformed kind of despite ourselves. And again, as with meditation, we, we can't necessarily see it happening. We don't, we're not conscious of ourselves being changed. We don't kind of know exactly when and where we're being changed, but at some point we realise we are changed, we are different. That's what happens by the end of a pilgrimage as well. Um, and then there are other kind of metaphors which I'm sure you could unpack, but, you know, travel light, <laughs> don't carry excess baggage. Um, I, this last time I met a woman from Canada and she had this wonderful saying, um, she said, most people carry 50 pounds of fear. <laughs> As in... They've got this and that in their pack just in case. Just in case this, I'll take this. Just in case, I'll take this. And you end up with 50 pounds of fear in your backpack, which gives you a lot of blisters. <laughs> so, you know, that's a, that's a helpful thing too, isn't it, in terms of our life, the, the, the pilgrimage of life, how much fear is in our backpack. Um, yeah, I think that's probably... It's also sort of a key part of the world community's life, the pilgrimage to India. Yes. Um, and also tacked on to the John Main seminar. Yeah. Except in America for, one, for whatever reason. Oh, right. But we had one up here yep. uh, two years ago. Yep. So we went north to uh, uh, the Murray settlement. Yes. And yeah. that was very special. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm. It, it, it really is, I think. Uh, it's a contemplative practice, and it, and it. I mean, I notice after I've done pilgrimage, my meditation has also changed, you know, deepened. Um, there's something about that, you know, the step after step, which is like the mantra, you know, it's the same dynamic. Yeah, um, I've I've said. When Bon Vaux gets going, I'm very happy to lead some pilgrimages in France to Bon Vaux. You know, we can walk for a week and <laughs> get there. So. <laughs> Um, okay, this is another question. Given meditative practice is at the heart of our faith and we can now encounter people from different faith traditions in meditative practice together at times, how does that change our appreciation of the other in these non-Christian faith traditions? That's a really good question. Um, <coughs> As you know, meditation is a universal spiritual practice. Um, it's in all the major traditions. And I think, as, as 
as Lawrence has said, in that in the ground, you know, in that silence, in that ground of silence, we we meet one another at at a deeper level, um, and interfaith dialogue is always more productive and more real when it springs out of that shared prayer that shared, than if it just starts with we, we talk about our concepts because really what do our concepts mean except as our attempts to express um, you know what is revealed to us and, and what we experience in, in that silence so I, I think it does change and, and in a sense makes um, makes for a less threatened and less tribal kind of exchange between the traditions when we meditate together. I think part of what we realise is um, the universality of, of the human spirit and, and that we are all... Um, that all the traditions in different ways speak about some of the same deep spiritual practices of things like detachment, things like obedience, um, things like self-offering. That, that's, you know, that's a universal wisdom as well. And I think that, that we can then perhaps, out of that deeper sense of what is shared, start to have some conversations about what might still be different and not in a threatened I must be right and you must be wrong kind of way but in, in the kind of conversation conversation and conversion have the same uh, root that the possibility of learning from each other or you know shifting our understanding or seeing our tradition more deeply in the light of what somebody else sees or says um, and vice versa, offering that for others. One of the verses that people often stumble over or often kind of raise in this regard is that verse in John's Gospel where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that, you know, can be preached on or, or interpreted as saying... So you have to be a card-carrying Christian or you don't get to heaven. I mean, that's the crudest version of it, but, you know, but that exists, that crude version of it. Um, how, how I find it helpful to think of is if you think that Jesus is the way, what is the way that Jesus is? And the way that Jesus is is the way of hospitality, of... Um, of self-dispossession, of um, radical inclusivity. That's the way that Jesus is. So it doesn't make sense to me to think that Jesus is like that and then when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life, this becomes a licence to exclude and to not offer hospitality and to, you know. So, so I think when we think about that phrase, you just all, we need to think about, well, what is the way that Jesus is? And that is the way, I, I think I can then sign up to that. I can say, yeah, that is, a way that, that is the way that leads to life. 
that kind of self-dispossession, that kind of hospitality, that kind of... Um, and in that sense, it doesn't need to be read exclusively. I, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's fantastic. Yeah, well, and, and if you think that, you know, what's so radical about, about the Paschal journey is that the fullest revelation of God happens as God goes out of the world. You know, like the crucifixion is the kind of the death of all, our, all idolatrous understandings of, of God as, you know, as... So that... If, if, if that's who we're following, then that allows for... Um, and, and Jesus is in the book of Islam. And yeah. So. Yeah, that's right. Which isn't to say that there might not be some, some differences or some... And in the same way that within the Christian tradition we can argue about interpretations of, you know, who's reading Jesus rightly, as it were, or, um, you know, uh, if... Christ is, in a sense, our criterion for, is this, Christ is, is judgment in the sense that Christ is the, the touchstone against which our religious practices have to, you know, have to, um, so where there are in other traditions practices that end up scapegoating or end up, um, you know, in persecution or end up in cruelty, you might want to bring the the Christic criterion to say, mm, not sure that that's <laughs> that's okay, just as we would in our own tradition, versions of our own tradition. So it's not it, it's not the same as a just oh well look all roads lead to Rome, you know, like all 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 paths up the mountain of it. It's not just a kind of never mind. We don't need to be serious about the conversation about where our you know what is the deeper truth of this or but it doesn't have to be divided along tribal or or just surface confessional lines it's actually about that much deeper um dimension i don't know if anyone wants to add to that but um would you like to comment on the following quote by robert Steele? promoter of the open society, open source everything. And then a quote, the truth at any cost lowers all other costs. So I guess this is partly about the, the kind of um, WikiLeaks um, approach, approach, perhaps, that, that it's good that there be no state secrets or that there be no, you know, nothing hidden, everything open source everything that's happening in the world available to everyone. I, that's how I'm reading the question. I hope that's more or less what you had in mind. Um, I think this is actually a complex question. Um, in terms of our own lives, personal lives, I think, I think in terms of our ourselves, knowing ourselves, it's important to get more and more truthful with ourselves. Um, Richard Raw has a great quote about that though. He says, the truth will set you free, but before it does, it usually makes you miserable. 
and <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but I do think that this journey of deepening truthfulness for ourselves is, you know, that's part of that's the spiritual journey. Truth in terms of how we how we tell our truth uh, to other people, um, and at higher levels, how you know whether whether the diplomatic cables of all nation states should be freely available to each other. <laughs> um, that is a complex question because I think one of the things about truth-telling, when we tell the truth, especially when it's a truth that's going to make us vulnerable, or that makes us vulnerable, there's a sense in which we want that truth to be received trustworthily. You, you don't just blurt out the deepest truth of your life to someone who you, you don't cast your pearls before swine. Um, which is a matter of discernment again. <laughs> um, and I've always been struck by the way Jesus is at his trial where he doesn't really say anything. Pilate asks him all these questions, you know, tell me who you are, are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus sort of looks like he's evading it. He says, well, you say so, or you say that I am. Or... And when I was a child, this just used to frustrate me. It's just like, well, just tell him and it'll be okay, you know. Um, just, just, just say it. Um, and what I've, what I've realised since is that... Um, into certain kinds of listening, into a toxic listening, you cannot speak the truth because it can't be heard. And some, some of you might have had the experience. I've had the experience of being with people with power over who asked questions in a certain way and you know they can't receive your truth and you are silenced by that. This is a... Jesus is silenced. There's a difference between a kind of creative silence that we've been sharing and being <laughs> silenced. So that's, that's part of our world. So then the question is, if we shared everything with people as it happened, if we made all our diplomatic cables available, you know, I mean, I guess an argument is if there were no secrets to begin with and nothing to be shamed by, it wouldn't have the power. You know, you wouldn't be as vulnerable. But I guess I'm not entirely sure about that. And I do wonder if there's a place, just as there is a place in, you know, within families or within... There, there are toxic secrets and things that, that shouldn't be secret. But there are things that not everybody needs to know. Um, and maybe it's not helpful for everybody to know and maybe solutions can be found without everybody having to be involved and maybe that is part of what's risked by a kind of a, an, an un undiscriminating open source policy so for what it's worth Um, <coughs> 
As a pastor or as a theologian, have you some thoughts on the practice of Christian meditation and the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially Step 11, which um, you probably know is, is about um, a practice of meditation and um, prayer? This isn't something that I've had a lot of direct experience with, um, either working with people who are in the 12-step program or working specifically with the 11th step. Um, as I thought about this, I just offer this one, one thought, which strikes me as a real wisdom in, in the 11th step. I think that the journey of transformation has two kind of two major stages which which to some extent you know you do the first stage and you move to the second stage but they're always you know interrelated and I think in the journey of transformation and healing part of the first stage is to be restored to ourselves um, again, and restored to community, restored to ourselves. You think about a lot of the healing stories in the Gospels. What Jesus does is, you know, he might heal someone and then, then he'll send them back into their community or he'll, um, he'll invite them just to get on with their life, you know. <laughs> um, there's a sense in which a first step is, is to be restored to ourselves, to know who we are. And in some cases that might mean actually, um, actually developing a more robust egoic self. Um, there are people who, for reasons of perhaps abuse or childhood trauma or racism or sexism, have had their self colonised and never, never really developed a very robust egoic self, which with a sense of I, I'm, I'm someone, you know, and I, and it's okay for me to be someone, and I can have a boundary, and all of those, all of those things are important. And as many feminist theologians have pointed out, often the, in the Christian tradition, the injunction to give yourself away. For women who've never been allowed to have a self in the first place hasn't been very helpful, you know, because there is no self yet <laughs> to give away. And it's just, it's ended up being collapsed into and colluding in this, exactly the kind of self-abnegation, which is, you know, which is unjust and, and which is, from which they've suffered all their lives. So, so it's necessary that we come home to ourselves, be restored to ourselves, have a sense of ourselves. And then the invitation is from that place of kind of whole, wholeness and to be able to begin to give ourselves away. To, but here we're giving ourselves away not to the abuser or not to the sexist system or the racist system. We're not being colonised but we're giving ourselves to God, 
who's, who, in, in whom we more and more come home to ourselves. You know, so it's a kind of a giving away, which is also a receiving. And I wonder, I don't, uh, and so what I thought of with the 11th step was this process. I mean, it's interesting, it's the 11th step, it's quite late in the, in the process. There's been a process of recovery and of recovering sense of self. But then the invitation is perhaps, okay, now let yourself go into God, into this trustworthy, um, trustworthy reality. Like that's, what, that, that's another level of transformation, another level of healing. Um, yeah, I offer it. Um, those of you who have more knowledge of this um, process, you know, sift, sift, sift that as you will, okay? Like, that's not the word of God, that's Sarah <laughs> offering something. But I, you know, maybe that gives one way of seeing it. Um, how are we going? A couple more? Uh, this is just a quick one, actually. Could I give the Rowan Williams reference for the quote in my introductory talk where he was talking about contemplation and action? Sorry, yes, I, I knew that I hadn't quite got the footnotes sorted <laughs> before I... <laughs> um, it's actually in one of the other talks, the, the footnote, but it is the reference is to his uh, address to the Synod of Bishops in Rome in 2012. And you can find it on the internet if you just Google Rowan Williams Synod of Bishops, it comes up. Um, um, would you please say something about how simplicity, few possessions, order, everything having its place and in place, and cleanliness of our home environment is supportive of our contemplative practice. That is, we are not overwhelmed and distracted by material things. will strike fear into the peas among us. Um, <laughs> uh, being a J, I'm all right. <laughs> uh, look, I, I think it's true that our um, that our outer, you know, again, as we go on in the journey, that more and more in various different ways, we want our outer life and our inner life to be aligned, attuned. And that ranges from our physical space, our, our home environment, through to the integrity of our relationships, through to the integrity of our work and our, you know, commitments. All of, you know, it's kind of like it's more and more we need things, we're drawn to have things aligned. So I think it's true that a certain kind of decluttering, um, internally is uh, tends to lead to a desire for external decluttering and also is helped by it um, having said that um, of course we also hold that lightly because if we become Nazis about that at home, that's, <laughs> that, that may not be a sign <laughs> of a deeper transformation. But, you know. So again, it's kind of like there's a lightness uh, to this. 
Um, but yes, I, I, I think that's true. And I think we find, I think a sign that that's actually happening is it just becomes natural. You know, we just find ourselves, oh, I just don't want so much stuff anymore. Or I'm sick of all of this clutter in my wardrobe that I never, you know, or whatever it is. I think, I think that just starts to happen naturally. Um, would you like to talk about priesthood? It's strength, but more importantly, how priests might abuse power, how to live with that, and what of the future of this role? <laughs> You've got two minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Before the people take over. <laughs> Again, just an excellent question. Um, <laughs> she. I mean, in terms of what of their future role, the prospect of anyone being paid to be a priest in the future is looking pretty dim, I have to say. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, that's part of it. And that's saying something, I think. Um, I speak for myself. Um, I, re you know, I flew into New Zealand and I had to say what my profession was on the arrival card. And I put priest, although I always have a little debate about whether I'm going to put that. Um, I prefer it to minister of religion because that's just so long to fill out those silly little um, <laughs> square boxes. Um, There's something in me that's uneasy with that title um, because of the some of the associations, um, particularly the connotation that somehow a priest is, you know, in a different class or, you know, on a different plane or, you know, somehow has a... Um, Yeah, there's a there's a kind of elitism um, that can be associated with that word that that I don't like. And yet, when I think of what describes my sense of my vocation, which which I guess feels to me like a vocation to this is going to sound um, you know I'm going to qualify this but 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 feels like a vocation to communicate God um, I, I don't mean that people need a priest to communicate God because I believe in the priesthood of all believers. I'm a good Protestant at that level. <laughs> and, and, and that we all are equally open to and, and um, spoken to and called into vocations by God. But for me, this, the privilege of 
and I guess as a theologian as well, the privilege of seeking to um, help people on that journey or to clear away what might feel like obstacles or to, to kind of witness to the possibility of that kind of relationship with God, all of that feels at the heart of my vocation. And priest is kind of the best word to describe that. Um, theologian, maybe, uh, does as well, but I don't know. So don't hear that as me saying, I think you need me to communicate God, because that is not what I mean. But for me, what is most life-giving is to be in this space with you, you know, to, to be... Yeah, and, and kind of opening and sharing and encouraging and, and all of that. And, and I guess, I guess um, communities, any community, um, needs leadership, I think, needs, needs a focal point, um, although it needs to be a self-dispossessing focal point as much as one can manage that, you know. But... Um, I guess part of what I've learnt with Benedictus is that leadership matters and that other people have their distinct vocations. One of the things I, um, I'm, we take really seriously is that um, everyone, everyone is, is called. Um, but we have people who come who are climate scientists or people who come who teach in high school or people who are carers. and they that's their gift and that's their passion and that's their and I need them to be doing that and once a week on a Saturday they can come into a space which refreshes them for that and that's what I give so we're in it together we but but my piece is that piece and their piece is some other piece and um that's what I think of, that's what I think it's why I end up using the word priest. Um, so, of course, priest, insofar as it has been part of a hierarchy, part of an institution, wielded power, wielded spiritual power in the sense of they get to tell you when you're right and wrong and in and out and all of that, it's been abused um, and is rightly in many cases, come under suspicion for that reason. Um, the future of the role... It seems to me that the more, the more our Christian tradition matures and each of us within it are on our, a real journey and really maturing, the less scope there is for that abrupt that abuse because people will know when it's not when it's inauthentic or when it is abusive and not be afraid to say so part of the problem in the past i think has been people were disempowered weren't allowed to trust their own sense of things did just have to think that father knew best um, and went along with stuff i think the more that an authentic kind of spiritual journey is underway and transformation in the whole people of God, 
the less scope there is for people to get away with stuff like that. Um, and in that sense, maybe it does have a role. It will continue to have a role in the kind of way I've described. Um, but it will be not, not a hierarchical, um, dominating kind of role, but a much more... Sorry? <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, the church might have to do a fair bit of dying, I think, before we get to that point. It's getting there. Yeah, that's right. We're knocking it off. Um, okay, look, I've actually just got two more questions. So maybe, do you mind if we do that and then... Okay. So this one, um, the lecture this morning was difficult. I need to listen to it again. I expected some social justice teachings to emerge. We'll read your notes when you send them. Um, and so it talks about the, the question of truth. Um, there's my truth, there's your truth, and somewhere in the middle is the real truth. <laughs> um, we are called, we, we are Jesus, God, in the world today. Action takes a lot of courage, especially in your no, own neighbourhood. And raising the question about with the woman caught in adultery story, um, they brought only the woman to Jesus. Social justice is an integral part of the Jesus story, and sometimes we need to agitate. And yeah, I think that's right. I, 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 so there's a few bits to that. Um, just on the on the woman caught in adultery story, I, I had a whole bit in about you know how come only she got <laughs> brought. Um, I. I sort of um, didn't end up saying that, but I think um, that's exactly right. Part of, part of the Pharisees' blindness in bringing her and treating her the way they did was also not to notice that um, the whole system was, was blind um, and self-deceived as to where the real injustice lay. And I guess the little mention I made of they're blind to the complexity of her circumstances and her life, and I was alluding to that. That you know, who who knows what was going on there, and um, to what extent, um, you know, it was her adultery at all. <laughs> um, so that's that's a really good point. Um, absolutely, I agree that social justice is integral to the story of Jesus, and that. Um, we need to act, and maybe maybe agitation is the form that action takes in in certain in certain contexts. In a way, I, I think I was taking for granted that we all agree that um, the form of action that we're interested in in our lives is just action. You know, is, is action to bring to bring justice, to bring healing, to bring life, uh, to to set the set free the, the captive and sight to the blind. And the reason I, I focused on the discernment, and tomorrow, again, it won't be directly on social, um, social action, was because we can all furiously agree that what needs to happen is justice, but the tricky thing to know is, and what do I do about that? Like, how do, how do I choose how, what, to, what to act, what act to do? Now, sometimes it will be obvious, you know, there'll be something right in front of you and you just do it, and in that sense, you know. But I guess the question I'm 
trying to um, help us explore is there's lots of there's lots of actions we can take and there's lots of activism we can be involved in but is there something that a contemplative approach to this might have to offer which is a contribution to this field of action and, and the way we go about that. Um, I do think it's a danger that we can end up acting for activity's sake um, because we, we care so much and we do want to do something and we, you know, we don't want it to be the way it is. But, but I think we do... It, we are invited to, to discern, okay, well, where, where is fruitful action going to be here? Or, you know, and, and where, where, is, where are the pathways that God might be drawing us down here? So is that quote from Rowan Williams that I shared at the beginning, because otherwise our search for justice or for peace becomes undermined by human self-deception and, and the kind of, human will. Um, so, for what it's worth, that's the approach I've taken to try, to try to explore, is there something that as contemplatives and as part of a contemplative faith community we can offer into the whole conversation, like because there are lots of people out there who are concerned for and acting for and agitating for justice in powerful and creative ways that we can be part of. But is there, a, is there also something as well as that, as well as our energy and our participation in the best of that? Um, can we, you know, is, is there a way we approach that? Is there, a, is, there some, is there a spirit we bring to that that might also be a contribution? And then the final one, before we meditate, the group listens to a teaching CD. Then when I meditate, and often afterwards, I've forgotten the words I heard. Is there any value in the listening? <laughs> Don't know, really. <laughs> um, but something uh, John Maynard always says, you know, forget about it. Forget that. about it, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, I do... I guess it, it depends how it, how it is for you. Um, I think sometimes we can do that, we can listen, think we've forgotten everything, and then maybe a week or so later a stray phrase comes back. Or, or even if not the actual words, we get the spirit of it. So part of what I get when I listen to John Mayne or something, it's a, like a spirit, a way of being towards the meditation, which is just a helpful reminder. Um, and even if I can't remember exactly what it was, it kind of keeps, keeps, yeah, it just becomes a part of it, exactly. And again, how we do not know, but this thing might be, you know, might be having an impact. Um, you know, I guess I would say if it really agitates you and you find yourself stewing the whole meditation because <laughs> you have to listen to this, you know, then that might be a different kind of conversation. But if, if it's just, you know, I'm not sure that I take much away in terms of re recall, I wouldn't necessarily 
think that's a problem because I do think it's, you know, in the same way um, John Maine says the best preparation um, for silence is silence. <laughs> um, you know, the best preparation for meditate is to be silent beforehand. I mean, listening to John Maine is kind of the next best thing. <laughs> not, not because it's boring, but because there's a, there's a sense in which he himself inhabits that space. He inhabits the space that we're being invited into. And somehow just hearing that um, helps us to open into that space in the time of meditation. And then you play the CD, you teach the CD after the meditation. Right. Then you might go home with a word or two that you can remember. You might. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way you do it. That's the way you do it, right. Yeah, so again, different groups, different... Um, so. I think the danger to our, our practice is that we become, they can be too epidemic. Yeah. And I remember hearing one uh, speaker speaking on contemplation, and uh, there was no, ex <coughs> no silence at all, there was no meditation. Mm. And I thought, you know, this is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, unreal. yeah. And I think, you know, John Mann is just always recalling us to the practice, yeah. isn't he? Yeah. Just do the practice, do the practice. And, mm. Yeah. But, but from that space himself, space. not as an abstract matter. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for these wonderful questions. I hope that you've all, you know, kind of received something from hearing the questions. And um, yeah. So. I think that deserves a pleasure. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of silence, I feel like you've heard a lot of my voice over the past two days. So. <laughs> So we'll have a two-minute stretch uh, and we'll uh, go and do it.